All right. This morning, uh, so I'll just tell you this. My daughter the other day, actually just yesterday, she asked me a question, which was a good question. She says, Dad, what do you do when you write a sermon? Like, how do you prepare to write a sermon? And that was a great question. And the way I answered it was, well, you know what? You got to just, you got to really study the passage. And what you're after is to really find what is the main idea here? What is this passage saying? Okay? So when I come into the pulpit, uh, I'm trying to convey to you what I believe this passage says. Okay? I'm not bringing my own ideas into the text. I'm trying to mine from out of the text what is this saying? What is the main idea here? And then conveying that to you as best and as clearly and uh, as powerfully as I can with the Lord's help and with his strength. Uh, and so one, one of the things that I do, as you know, my practice is to preach through a book of the Bible. And, whoa, I might blow up over here. I preach through a book of the Bible. Like, uh-oh. Everything is Okay. That was a, a message from the local emergency broadcast system. Uh, this is only a test. So when I preach, I like to preach through a book of the Bible. And one of the reasons I like to do that is because uh, you, you have to preach things that you might not otherwise gravitate to naturally. Okay? Um, and it forces you to deal with some difficult parts of, of the text. All right, and that's a good thing for me. It's a good thing for you, okay? Because I just, if I only preach the things I like, there's going to be some gaps, okay? Uh, I think we can all admit that, right? Uh, if, if we read only the parts we like, then uh, there's going to be gaps. Uh, so today we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. And, and I say that because where we're going is, uh, it, it's an area in which I'm well aware that people who love Jesus disagree on this, Okay? Uh, and I'll say more about that later uh, as I get into the, the text. But uh, people who love Jesus disagree on this. Uh, and at the same time, I've got to preach according to my convictions, what I believe the Word says. And so that's what I'm going to bring to you today. But understand that uh, in, in this area with respect to this, uh, and you'll see, I'm not going to give it away, but uh, we need to have a lot of grace for one another. We need to love one another. And this shouldn't be something that divides us uh, we, we love Jesus, and we love the gospel, and we believe in grace alone. And so, with that being said, let's, let's get to it, shall we? That's why I say it might get hot in here. It's good that air conditions cooking, right? All right, so two weeks ago, we saw Jesus multiplying a peasant boy's meager lunch to feed a crowd that could have been as large as 20,000 people. Last week, we saw the people starting to think, hey, this could be the king we need for our revolution to kick out the Romans. Well, Jesus wasn't having any of this, and so he withdraws. And then he appears to his disciples walking on the rough waters of the Sea of Galilee to show them what kind of king he really intends to be, holy and powerful and helpful. Now this week, the people catch up to Jesus but they're not looking for a king this time. They're looking for bread. They're looking for food. The bread that they seek, though, is not the bread that they need. 
Jesus will tell them of their need for food, uh, not for food that perishes, but for bread that endures to eternal life. And the question is this, what is this wonder bread? How do we get it? How do we keep it? These are the questions that Jesus will answer in our text this morning. And this is a long text. I don't think I've ever preached on 35 verses before. So uh, it's our practice to, uh, to stand out of reverence for the word of God. We'll do that, but you might want to stretch a little bit, you know, if you get stiff standing for too long. Uh, we're going to read it together because it's important. It's God's word. So grab those Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1059. All right, here we go. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, of, uh, of the sea, saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, uh, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to them, or then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, We thank you that your word is rich and powerful. We thank you that all scripture is is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the people of God may be equipped for every good work. Father, equip us with your word today. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and behold the treasure of your word. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what is it? That's our first question. The people catch up with Jesus in Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And fun fact, when I was in uh, Israel in 2017, uh, I got a chance to visit Capernaum and went to the synagogue in Capernaum. It wasn't the same synagogue that Jesus would have been in, but it was on the same site. It was on the same location. Uh, The synagogue built there was built in the Byzantine era, uh, which is well after Jesus, of course. Uh, But the practice was to build the new synagogue on top of the old synagogue. And so uh, I was kind of in the same place where this discourse happened. So that's fun for me. Uh, But notice what happens here. Uh, The people understand, they, they are are cognizant of the fact that Jesus didn't get into the boat with his disciples. And they're asking him, how'd you get here? How did you get here? But Jesus explains, uh, you know, not the fact that he can walk on water. By the way, everyone, I can walk on water. I just took a stroll last night and uh, came here on my feet over the water. No, he doesn't do that. Uh, Instead, he goes right to the heart to expose They're misguided and superficial seeking. They're not even there because they're seeking signs anymore. He's already criticized people for 
following him because they're just sign seekers chasing after miracles. They want to see, you know, a, a spectacle, right? But that's not even the case anymore. The people following him now, it, it's worse. They're there just because they got their bellies filled. They're there because they, they got their fill of the bread. Now understand that at this time and place in history, bread and fish were the staple diet of the people. And roughly 85% of their income would go towards feeding their family, right? And so if they could get bread for free, you can do the math. That's a pretty substantial boost to your portfolio there, right? 85% boost to their income. But Jesus tells them, listen, don't work for food that perishes, but for bread that endures to eternal life. Now, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to earn a living. That's a good thing, and we're commanded to do so in Scripture. Uh, It's a good thing to put food on the table for your family. Uh, It's not wrong to have material possessions. What he's saying is that working to provide is fine and good, but don't work for these things. Don't work for these things. Material things are not to be your master. He's making a point about what drives you, what gets you up in the morning, what what you give your time and your energy for, what your heart chases after. What is it that your life is oriented around? These things all perish and fade away. Your job, your stuff, your car, your friends and family your very life, these will all perish. Whether they wear out or whether they're taken from you, they're not permanent. Instead, Jesus says to orient your life around what will last into eternity. In verse 30, the people ask Jesus, what sign will you do that we should believe you? What are you going to do for us, Jesus? And in verse 31, they kind of drop a hint Hint, hint. Uh, you know, they cite the miracle of the manna in the Old Testament. You know, hey, you, you just fed, you know, a lot of people there in, in the desert, uh, in the wilderness. You know, maybe you could do it again. You know, that, that, that happened again and again in the Old Testament with Moses. Hint, hint. Maybe you could do it again and, and give us some more bread. And here's where Jesus connects the dots from his miracle of the multiplying of the bread and the fish. For the crowd, he connects that to the miracle of uh, the Old Testament uh, provision of manna. It's all a picture that points to him. He is the true reality. Those things are the shadows that point to him. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. And twice Jesus makes that famous proclamation, I am am the bread of life. So that's what it is. How do we get it? How do we get it? And I've got uh, three sub points here. The first one is he gives. He gives. Look at verse 32. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. 
You remember that beloved verse that we all know so well, John 3.16. We've already covered that in the sermon series. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the father gives the son as a gift, as a gift of grace, not to be earned but to be received. But the son then gives two. Look at the end of verse 51 where Jesus says, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So God the Father is giving and now Jesus is giving. Think with me a minute about the food that you eat. Some uh, have humorously objected to the practice of hunting for food saying that it's cruel to animals, uh, the alternative that they propose is, hey, why not just get your food at the grocery store like everybody else? Right? Of course, that's funny, right? Because where do they think the food in the grocery store comes from? Right? Someone's got to kill it. Last night, you may have had a dead cow for dinner or a dead chicken. Uh, maybe you've had, you, it was with a side of dead vegetables, maybe a dead tomato, uh, or dead grains. Or maybe you've had, uh, for breakfast this morning, you had some dead chicken eggs for breakfast with a side of fried dead pork. Here's what I'm getting at. In order for us to live, something has to die. In order for us to live, We've got to eat something that had to die. And so when Jesus says that the bread of life is his flesh, he's talking about and foreshadowing his death on the cross. His death would mean life for us. Eternal life that death has no power over. This is the bread that Jesus gives He gives his life for the life of the world. He died in our place as our substitute that we might live. So the Father gives, the Son gives. There's one more thing, though, that the Father gives here, though. In verse 36, Jesus addresses their unbelief. He says, you've seen me. You've seen the things that I can do. You've heard my teaching. You've seen me, yet do not believe. So let me ask you, does does their unbelief mean that Jesus failed as an evangelist? I mean, there's probably no better evangelist in the history of uh, Christianity, right, than Jesus. No, of course not. Jesus, he explains why in verse 37. So he just cites their unbelief. He's going to cite why in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now it's pretty obvious from the text or from observing kind of life that not everyone comes to Jesus. Many do, but not all. And many reject Jesus. Jesus is teaching that those who do come have been given to him by the Father. 
There are some who are given and there are some who are not. So Jesus is not devastated or frustrated by their rejection. He actually expects it. He explains why. The reason for their unbelief is that they have not been given to him by the Father. He knows that many will reject him and that eventually they're going to reject him to the point of pinning him to a cross. But he knows that many will come to him. All those that the Father has given to him. And this is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Paul tells us that those who are given to Jesus by the Father are chosen before the foundation of the world, motivated by his love and in accordance with his will. But the Father does more than just give. This is the second point. He draws. He gives. He draws. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Those who are given to the Son will come to him. Why? Because the Father draws them. What does this mean? What does this look like? Are they dragged, kicking and screaming against their will? I think we can all agree the Bible doesn't teach this. Are they simply wooed by a loving pleading that can be accepted or rejected? Thankfully, Jesus explains this. He goes there. In the very next verse, Jesus explains that this is what the prophets wrote about. This is what they wrote about. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone, everyone who has heard and learns from the Father comes to me. Now, this is a quote from Isaiah 54, 13, but notice that Jesus says here that it's the prophets, plural, that teach this idea. So this is not uh, just isolated to Isaiah, but it's in the other prophets. One great example here is Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. Listen to this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive thee their iniquity, and will remember their sin no more. And this is how Paul explains it in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This drawing is a teaching from the Father that is an inner illumination, an inner insight that convicts our hearts and instructs our minds that Jesus is who he says he is. This is the teaching from the Father. And this is 
What happened in Acts 16 when Lydia was converted? Uh, The writer Luke explains the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. There was an activity of the Lord at work in her heart. And one more clear example is Matthew 16. When Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And he replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The father revealed that to Peter, the internal teaching of the Father was given to Peter. The teaching is the drawing. The teaching is the drawing. The inner teaching of the Father is how he draws those he's given to Jesus. Now, in contrast to this, the people are playing a dangerous game. They're asking, what, what, what must we do? Okay, to have this bread. And by the way, what will you do for us? And this is how the gods of the ancient world worked. They were needy gods. And this is how many approach religion today. It's, it's, a, it's a work of cost-benefit analysis that asks God, okay, what are your demands and what will you do for me? Okay, and you weigh the pros and cons, and you determine if God meets certain characteristics that you're looking for. Uh, Is this a God that you can live with? Uh, Is this a God that you can believe in? Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem with this thinking. The Bible is not interested in a God you can believe in, but in a but in the God who is. That's what the Bible is interested in and conveys to us the God who is. Those who truly come to, D- to Jesus don't do so because they believe that they're doing God any favors. Those who come do so because they feel strangely drawn, because they know who Jesus is. Having the eyes of their hearts opened by an inner teaching of the Father to know just who he is and just what their need for him is. And so those who truly come to Jesus come as beggars. Beggars knowing very well their need for the bread of life. And so the father gives the son. The son gives his life on the cross. And the father gives and draws those who come to Jesus. Third point, we eat. So he gives, he draws, we eat. The final thing that happens in order for you to have the bread of life is that you must obey the command to come and eat. Now hopefully you understand that bread and eating in this passage are metaphors. Jesus is not condoning or promoting cannibalism. The true bread that the Father gives in verse 32 does not mean literal bread. Okay? the true bread. Jesus calls his flesh true food in verse 55. This does not mean his flesh is literal food. Okay? And to drink and to eat his flesh and blood is not literal eating of his literal body and his literal blood. That's not what is being taught here. Remember in the physical world, 
we talked about this earlier, all things, uh, things die all the time so that you can live. Well, the mention of Jesus' flesh and blood that gives life to the world represents his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. So what does it mean to eat this? Well, think about how we eat anything. We chew it. We think about it. We meditate on it. We, we swallow it. We commit we trust all the way by receiving it into the innermost parts of us. And this metaphor is not completely foreign to us. We, uh, I actually have, I have daughters who read like crazy. They read thick books. I mean, Ernie can't give them enough books to keep them occupied. Uh, but they devour books. We say that about people, right? They devour books. Um, you drink in a beautiful sunset Grandmothers, any, any grandmothers here? You ever want to eat up your grandchildren? I hope that's not literal, okay? Because that'd be weird. Uh, we chew on ideas, right? We think about things. We chew on things. Uh, and sometimes we eat our own words. And this is what eating Jesus' flesh and blood means And this becomes obvious when we work backwards through this passage. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And then 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 29, this is the work of God that is required to believe in Jesus. So eating means to look to Jesus, to come to him, to believe in him, to trust that his death is sufficient payment for your sin that forgives your sin and gives you Life. That's what it means to eat. That's what it means to eat. Now, sidebar here, before I get to my last point, I want to address the elephant in the room. For many, uh, this teaching makes you very uncomfortable and uh, some find it offensive. Uh, To suggest that God chooses to save some and not others is just unthinkable. I will say this. Many Christians who are very intelligent, many of them smarter than me, and who love Jesus, love him dearly, don't believe that God chooses like this. All Christians believe that we're saved by grace alone. It's just the matter of the particulars of how that grace works. What I've taught in John 6 represents my convictions on this passage and what I believe is the clear and plain teaching of the scriptures But I want to say this, if you don't agree with me on this, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. You can become a member of this church without agreeing with me on this. This is not in our doctrinal statement because we believe that this should not be an issue that divides Christians, but that we can have grace for one another who have differing opinions on this and positions. And sadly, this doctrine has all too often been weaponized to attack other Christians. And this should never be. This should never be. 
The tension that this doctrine brings up for people is, is that it can seem fatalistic. Just how are we to understand the relationship between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? What is the deciding factor in our conversion? Is it man's free will or is it God's sovereign choice? Well, I believe that the Bible's answer to that question is yes. I don't think that these ideas have to be in conflict with one another. And here's some examples. The gospel, it's a beautiful and glorious news for all people that calls them to turn to Jesus and to believe. And yet, we see in Acts 13, 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's an awesome thing that Paul tells those in Athens in Acts 17. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And at the same time, Paul tells Timothy that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. It is an awesome thing that Paul writes to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 2.4. God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's equally awesome what John writes in our passage today in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The Bible teaches both the free will of man and the sovereignty of God. These ideas are not in conflict with one another. D.L. Moody once used this illustration to help resolve the tension. If conversion represents a doorway that we walk through, there'd be a sign above the door that would read, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. As you walk through that door and you look back behind you to the other side of the doorway, there'd be a sign above the door that says, chosen before the creation of the world. Both things are in play. Both things are happening there, and they're not in conflict with one another. All right, that's all I want to say about this end of sidebar. Here's my final point, and it's a brief one. How do we keep it? The bread of life must be our daily bread. How do we know that we won't walk away from it or get tired of it or grow out of it? Or how do we know that Jesus won't get tired of us? Always messing up. We keep sinning, right? At what point is he going to kind of, we're going to reach the limit and he's going to say, enough is enough. Get out of here, guys. This is the beautiful truth of verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. You can't out the grace of God. I've said that before here. If Jesus will never cast you out, he will always keep you. And this is a beautiful thing about what I've been saying all morning. If it's God who gives you Jesus and Jesus who gives his life for yours and it's God who gives you to Jesus and God who draws you by his inner teaching. By the way, there's no dropouts or flunkies in the school of God. If he teaches you, you will graduate. Now look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing 
of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. If Jesus saves you, he will never cast you out. He will never lose you. He will not fumble on the goal line. What a beautiful comfort this is for our souls to know that God is at work at every point in our salvation. From start to finish, he will keep us to the end and he will raise us up on the last day. And it's a beautiful truth that reminds us that we didn't come to Jesus because we were smarter than the next guy or that we were more moral than the next guy, okay? We, were, we come to Jesus because we've been given to him and we've been drawn by him. It just, it, it gives such a great appreciation for the grace of God because I know that I did not do anything to deserve it. Now, in conclusion, let me show you how this teaching motivates our evangelism and keeps us from discouragement. Like Jesus, we should expect rejection. And we shouldn't be discouraged because not all have been given to Jesus. So we should expect that some rejection is going to happen. And this reminds us that it's not all about you. You can't give that inner teaching that the Father is going to give. You can't do that. But at the same time, we should be encouraged to know that many will respond because the Father has given many to the Son who will come to Jesus through our witness. We proclaim the word and they come. We give glory to God for this because this too is not about us. We can't build ourselves up with pride. It doesn't matter how good or how bad an evangelist you are. God will use you because he's given some. He's given many to the Son. It's like this. Imagine that you're on a baseball team and your coach tells you, hey, I'm going to put you in the batting lineup and I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to strike out a lot. Okay? Uh, but before the end of the game, I guarantee you're going to hit two home runs. You're like, put me in, coach. Let's do this. Right? You know, now you expect that you're going to miss some, right? Um, that you're not going to hit some, but he's guaranteeing that you're going to hit some home runs. Let's do it. Let's get out there. Let's do this. Or it's like a father going fishing with his son, uh, and he tells his son, hey, there's a lot of fish out there, son, and they're not all going to bite. A lot of them are just going to reject that worm altogether. Uh, it might be discouraging. We could spend several hours out here, son. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of rejection. But I guarantee you that at the end of the day, you're going to catch the three largest fish in this pond. Let's get in the boat. Let's do this, right? There, you're, you're being guaranteed some success. And this is the point. It's not about you. But it is a glorious thing that God chooses to use you. So get off the bench, church. Get in the game. God is at work and he wants to use you to bring others to faith in Jesus. And finally, before I pray, I just want to say this. If you're here today, if you're here today and you've never tasted the bread of life, if you've never come to Jesus and surrendered your life to him to be forgiven of your sin and to receive eternal life, today's the day. Come and receive Jesus today. Perhaps you're feeling strangely drawn. Maybe God is giving you that inner teaching that's drawing you and you just kind of feel it, that you know inside of yourself that it's true. That's the Father drawing you, so come. 
Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together in your word. Father, I pray that we would not be discouraged, but encouraged in our efforts to reach the lost with the glorious gospel of Jesus, knowing that many have been given to the Son, and so there will be success if we are faithful to get out there and to share the gospel. Many will reject us, but keep us from discouragement. Help us to keep pressing on. Help us to keep loving people. Help us to keep praying for people. And help us to keep taking advantage of the opportunities that we have to open our mouths and share the gospel of the bread of life, that Jesus who gave his life for the life of the world. And Father, may we just treasure the grace of God, knowing that we have come to you not because we were good enough, not because we were smart enough, but because we've been given to Jesus and we've been drawn to him. And so, Father, may we just cherish that treasure knowing that we didn't do anything. And, Father, may we be humble. May we love others knowing that we're no better than anyone else. We didn't uh, do anything to merit such favor. Father, may we be faithful to to proclaim this as well, to proclaim to others the, the grace of God that can be theirs. And may we leave it in your hands to draw. And may we celebrate and praise you for the results that we see, knowing that it wasn't about us, but it was all about you. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.